Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane in the studio with me, and I mean in the studio, not in some virtual world. Dr. Crystal, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's good to see you. It's lovely to be here. What a crisp and beautiful Sunday it is here in Melbourne today. Now, as long-term listeners of the show will maybe remember, because I don't, I've got a terrible memory. Have you been in the studio this year so far? I think I've been in once, once. maybe once in the interim times, but how nice is it yeah. to be back having conversations uh, face-to-face with people? I mean, online's nice, but I think the energy you get from being in the room is fantastic. Yeah, it's totally different. Totally different. I'm a bit freaked out when people come in here now because it's kind of my my own space, but uh, yeah. That's <laughs> you had your own little radio man cave for 14 months. <laughs> yeah, smelling it up. Uh, we've got Liv doing our Twitter feed. It's the first time Liv's been back in 14 months. Welcome back, Liv. And our guest is already in the studio. She's going to join us for the whole hour. Professor Sharon Lewin, the director of the Doty Institute. Welcome back yet again. Great to be here, Shane. How you? Are you uh, like you walked in? You're looking fresh. You're looking like you you rested, although you, you're clutching your coffee with some degree of love. Um, I mean, you must be the hardest work person in the city at this point after the last fourteen months, yeah. Well, there's been lots of people working really, really hard, and yes, last year was completely crazy. Twenty twenty one's better. Oh, better. Oh, that's good to hear. Definitely that's better. very good to hear. Excellent. All right, we're going to jump into some news, folks, and then we'll be doing a full interview with Sharon for the, the remaining 45 minutes of the show, which would be cool. There's so many topics we need to cover. Dr. Crystal, do you want to start us off? Uh, look, Shane, I don't know about you, but I've got small children in my house, and mm. nothing is more fascinating or funny than poo. <laughs> Sorry, I'm an adult and I still find it. I know, right? If you play a rhyming game with my kids, you'll say, what rhymes with zoo? And they'll say, poo. Yeah, of course. I love it. Anyway, so what caught my eye this week was a publication in the science journal Nature, which was actually looking at ancient poo and trying to answer the question, what does poo say about you? And what does it mean for people who lived long ago as compared to today? And so this was a really fascinating study that tried to sort of reconstruct um, the microbiomes of people who lived thousands of years ago based on poo samples Hmm. from archaeological sites. So this is uh, research that was led out of the Harvard School of Medicine in the US. And, you know, there's this huge interest, you know, in um, microbiomes and particularly there's a lot of, there's a lot of pseudoscience out there about ancient biomes and paleo diets. So I think this is a really fascinating paper to be able to look at, well, well, you know, what were the microbiomes like, you know, thousands of years ago and how do they compare to today? So microbiomes are your gut bacteria. So, you know, most people will have heard the idea that, you know, there are bacteria living in your gut and that, you know, they're intimately linked to your health, you know, and that, mm. that gut bacteria can influence um, your health um, in lots of different ways, I mean, particularly being linked to chronic diseases or inflammation or allergy. You know, there's, there's a lot of research going on. It's a really exciting area to think that, you know, we carry a kilo of bacteria around with us almost every day. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot. 
It's a lot. And, you know, there's been a lot of questions over the years about how, you know, we've changed as a society and how we've moved into a sort of more industrialised, um, you know, sort of diet that's more full of processed foods and, you know, how has that changed our gut bacteria? And so this was a question that we've always assumed, we've sort of always used kind of people from hunter-gatherer societies as like a, a marker of what our gut microbiomes might have looked like. But this study gets to do it directly because Mm. there are these poo samples that were found at archaeological sites in the US and Mexico, sort of in the desert. So if you imagine kind of they're described as being found on rock shelves and what a poo was doing on a rock shelf, I don't know. But anyway. (laughs) But you want to keep a good eye on your predators while you're (laughs) Yeah. You know, doing your business. Doing your business, yeah, yeah. In, a, in, a, yeah. In, a, in a dark, quiet cave. You know, a bit of privacy, I guess. <laughs> anyway, so these um, they're quite dry, desiccated um, samples. You'd hope so. And, um, and when they were radiocarbon dated, they were kind of uh, 1,000 to 2,000 years old. So, mm. you know, they're, they're old, but but they're still AD, do you know what I mean? They're still yeah, yeah. kind of, you know, they're not, they're not paleolithic. So we're not yeah. talking Neanderthal kind of thing. Yeah, we're not, talking... not, not opalized. No, yeah. because you could extract DNA from them. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, the researchers in the lab had to rehydrate them and try and extract all the DNA from them. And then one of the challenges is when you sequence DNA, it doesn't come out as one long stretch. It actually comes out as pieces. And it's almost like a big jigsaw puzzle. You have to sort of put all the pieces of DNA that you found, you know, and analyse. It's amazing mathematics that sits behind this. And, and this paper actually is quite profound because what it allowed them to do is actually sort out what was microbial DNA from what might be soil DNA or, you know, other, and, and DNA that was, you know, really from bacteria that was found in the gut. And so when they did this from these samples, they found about 180 genomes, so 180 full sequences that are able to put together to sort of say, we think we found 180 sequences of gut bacteria. And over a third of those had never been described before. So Mm. over a third of the bacteria genomes that they found in these um, fossilised samples, you know, were not seen today. And you think, wow, that's like a mass extinction event. You know, that's a lot of missing friends. You know, mm-hmm. like we've lost all those friends from our gut. You know, what does that mean? And so they're like, okay, well, let's compare. And then scientists thought, oh, let's compare it to people today. And they chose two groups of poo people, of poo from people to look at, people to look at their poo. Um, sort of what you would call kind of industrialised kind of um, uh, places like the US, Denmark and Spain. So people who live in real Western, urban sort of cultures with, you know, processed food and sort of maybe sedentary lifestyles, kind of industrialised. Mm-hmm. And then they chose a group of people who were non-industrialised. So they chose people um, from Tanzania, Fiji, Peru, Madagascar and Mexico who sort of lived a more agricultural led lifestyle. So, you know, with more unprocessed foods, a lot more active kind of populations. And it might, it probably comes to no surprise that the, the, the paleo poo most closely matched those non-industrialised people. Yep. And the biggest differences were seen with industrialised people. No, mm. not very much of a no-brainer. But what was really fascinating is the fact that there was no antibiotic resistance genes found in the ancient poo but was found in both the industrialised and non-industrialised people. So humans, our human microbiomes, the bacteria that live in our guts, no matter where you're from in the world, full of antibiotic resistance genes. But, of course, you know, thousands of years ago, there were none. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, wow. You know, I think it's a really fascinating study, but I guess what it kind of says is, like, it's a bit of a no-brainer, really. It's like, well, you'll have a, a, a more diverse microbiome if you eat, you know, plant-based diet, if you eat more fibre and more complex kind of, you know, carbohydrates and you have a more active lifestyle. But I think what's really fascinating is these extinct bacteria genomes that we found. You know, can we find them somewhere in nature? Can we reseed people's microbiomes? 
or even thinking into the far future, could we recreate these bacteria from their genomes, you know, as in a synthetic way, you know, yeah. you know? And, and, you know, science is leading us in that direction. So I think yeah. it's a really fascinating study mm. about microbiome. I think anything to do with poo, just like, is something it's that, fun. yeah, it's yeah. fun and yeah. interesting to talk about. But I think it really goes to show that um, the way we live our lifestyles does have an impact on our microbiome and our health. Yeah, it's super cool. I mean, my measure for my health is always if I eat a burger from a dodgy place, you know, one of the drive through type places, and I don't feel sick after eating it, my diet's bad. <laughs> Because you should feel bad. you should feel bad after eating that, folks. There, sh- there should be a penalty to pay for that. Folks. <laughs> there should be a penalty for eating that. So whenever I do that, I'm like I don't feel good. That means my diet generally is pretty good because I'm not my, my my system's not used to Your this, body's like, this garbage. Hold on, what's exactly? This? That's the Dr. Shane diet. Um, anyway, uh, so one thing I wanted to mention: we we talk a lot about um, the European Space Agency and NASA and all their great achievements, and you know the recent rover and the helicopter on Mars, and it's all very exciting. But you know there are other nations that do this as well. Um, and India often, you know, we, we hear a little bit about the Indian oh, space the program. Indian space program um, yeah. not, not so much. Um, but one that, of course, has just hit the news somewhat in the last few days or the last week, actually, is China's space program. Oh, yes. Now, most people would be aware of this because, you know, there was a rocket that was going to land somewhere and no one really know where and most of it was going to burn up, but not all of it. And, you know, if you were an Australian cricketer and you, you got the hell out of India and headed to the Maldives, maybe that wasn't the best place to be because that's where it ended up. But, um, you know, we we hear about that. But what has been less reported over the last 24 hours or last day or so is that um, China is now one of very few nations, actually, that has successfully landed a rover on Mars. Now, this is, you know, an incredible technological feat. Um, The Zurong rover, which was um, which went down the last couple of days on Mars, um, landed in Utopia Planitia, one of the sort of very flat areas on Mars, which is which is kind of in the north. Pretty cool. Um, the thing weighs about 240 kilos, so it's not huge. No, it's not big. It's, it's small compared to the others, but, you know, it's the first one. It's got six wheels. The thing I loved about it, if you see pictures of it, is they kind of landed it on this structure and then the structure has these two ramps that it kind of just drives off, like it's driving off the back of a boat or something. It's kind of, you know, where all the other rovers are kind of just land. In a yeah. crater almost. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this one sort of landed on this little platform and then just drove off. You know, like, it's kind of yeah. pre-existing ramps on yeah. Mars. It, it reminded me of someone, you know, when you get your car towed on the back of a truck yeah. and then you kind of drive off. It, it's just like that, right? It's kind of cool. Um, but, you know, they had to go through that, you know, you've heard about that seven minutes of, of terror where there's no communication. So you don't know. There's nothing you can do. If things are screwed up, it's all over. But they managed to do that effectively and we'll see how they go. It's going to be there for about working for about three months. Um, this is part of something that was a pretty big deal for them because they launched this rocket back in July with the payload. It had an orbiter as well as a lander as well as the rover. So it's kind of three in one go. It's like, let's not worry about doing one then the other and so forth, like all the other nations that have been successful, which is almost no nations, by the way. Um, let's do them all in one go. So let's do an orbiter, which will keep track of things. Let's do a lander and let's do a rover that will drive off the lander. So it's kind of, you know, three out of one. Now, of course... We're not getting a lot of information out of China in terms of data and so forth at the moment, and that may be very limited in terms of what we see, but exciting piece of news. So can I ask, Yeah. are these – so is there going to be a rover off? Like are these two <laughs> rovers – you know, there's, there's the well, – like there's the NASA rover, there's the China rover. Like are they going to like bump into each other? Yeah, well, I don't are think they so. Be, they're, on they're, very different, parts, different of parts of the planet. But I always remember one of the things when, when Curiosity rover was first put up, and I'm not sure if this works between the new Perseverance rover and the Chinese rover, but one of the 
things I thought was fascinating when they were talking about how big curiosity was yeah. is that it was capable of driving over opportunity and spirit, the other two rovers that were already there. So it could physically, like a big four-wheel drive, just kind of drive over the top of the roof. Oh, I was here first. <laughs> yeah, I'm bigger. Um, but, yeah, no, they're, look, they're in different parts of the world and, you know, world, Mars world. And it's, I think it's great. That's great to see this kind of, interest in Oh, we'll, in we'll learn planet. so yeah. much more, especially if we can share the data. Yeah. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention right before the break was, and I've just been fascinated with this for a long time because it's almost as old as me, but um, Voyager 1 is um, still sending back stuff. And yeah. there was actually a paper published on the 10th of May this year in Nature Astronomy with regards to the data coming back from Voyager 1. So for those of you who are, um, you know, millennials or younger, um, don't remember this, back in the 70s, we launched a couple of probes towards the outer solar system to get images of basically Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, and Uranus. And although where I grew up was called Uranus. And basically, these two probes have, you know, kept on, there's nothing like a plutonium power source to keep things going long term, but they have now headed well and truly out of our solar system and are still going and they're still sending back data which is just phenomenal they're so far beyond their expected life that it's incredible but what amazes me can you imagine so there's a phd student um who was involved in this her name's stella stella ocker and she is so her phd is on data from Voyager 1. I mean, that's kind of weird, right? This thing, this this old thing. And the, the bit I love is the data rate. So the data rate at the moment from Voyager 1 is about 160 bits per second. BPS. I never, BPS. I never owned a modem that slow, I don't think. so. I'm um, pretty sure I owned one that was 500 BPS. Yeah, yeah, you know, like she would be rocking if she got that. That's like five times the speed. Anyway, um, but what they're measuring is the, essentially the plasma density out in that so the in that area of space so this is beyond um, this region where our solar system has the most influence compared to the rest of the universe having the most influence in that region of space and think of it as kind of like a bubble you know our sun creates a bubble and Voyager 1 and 2 have gone beyond that bubble now. So they're really exploring into stellar space. And there's a few bits of stuff out there. You know, there's, there's some, some particles, not a lot, but there's some there. And normally to explore that, the only way we can get any sort of indication of that is when there's something like a solar flare where the, it's, it's like a submarine pinging out into the ocean and it sends back information. And the difference is now it's like, like you being out in the ocean and getting it directly. Mm-hmm. So we've got Voyager 1 sitting out there just monitoring this plasma level and sending back data. And they're seeing these fluctuations. And this, I mean, this is quite amazing because it's a long way away. I think, let me check the distance. I've got it here somewhere. It's a number that won't mean anything to anyone. 14 billion miles. <laughs> Worked it out, folks. It's, uh, it's a long time. It takes a long time for light to get back to us at that, that range. So still but keeping on. How amazing if you're actually involved in the original Voyager 1. I mean, you'd be still getting your name on papers 40 years later. That's a that's, that's a gift that keeps well, on giving. If, if you think about it, many of the people who worked on Voyager 1, I mean, I, I don't know the numbers here, but they would have been in their, you know, somewhere between their late 20s to 40s in 1970, 70-ish, because it would have taken a while to build it. And so how old are they now? You wonder how many of them are still with us. And there's probably a few that are, but there's probably some that that aren't. What a legacy. So it's such a generational sort of experiment. And, yeah, they don't make them like they used to, right? So, uh, you know, you think about these ones like, you know, the um, the helicopter on Mars, 30 days, good to go for 30 days. Voyager, good to go for 44 years. Incredible. <laughs> so it's good, it, but it's great to have a piece of equipment out there giving us some information well beyond the range of anything else we have. So kind of cool stuff. 
geez, the break was so fiery with a conversation with me and Professor Sharon Lewin here that uh, we forgot to come back on air for a moment. But uh, Sharon, we're back now. We've got so much to talk to you about, so let's get right into it. First of all, and this is probably a topic you haven't been asked about in the last year, which is one of your great loves, is the research work on HIV and the struggle against that. I heard a discussion between you and uh, Dr. Fauci when he was um, online about the reasons why our, you know, our body tells us essentially by our responses that a vaccine to COVID was possible because we develop an immunity. How is that? How does that work for HIV? I mean, why has HIV been so hard to crack? And does our body tell us, you know, that are there people that become immune to the virus after they've had it or that just doesn't happen, presumably? Talk us through that. Well, I'm very excited to start on HIV, Shane, <laughs> because no one asks me about HIV anymore. I've done so much stuff on COVID, but obviously yep. even over the last 18 months, I've stayed very active in the HIV world and still some amazing stuff has happened over the last 18 months. Mm. But one very common question I get now is, you know, God, if so it looks relatively easy to have made COVID. Of course, the COVID vaccine, of course, the COVID vaccines build on decades of yeah. research, yeah. whether it's on mRNA or the sort of immunogen you use in a vaccine. What does this mean for HIV? Well, one major, major difference between COVID and HIV is that pretty much everyone clears COVID mm. and we know what are the components of the immune system that are that are temporally associated with clearance of COVID. In HIV, no one clears HIV. Mm. However, there are a small group of people that can naturally control HIV without any drugs. About 1% of people first described decades ago, um, and we call people that can naturally control HIV elite controllers. Right. Um, my husband think that, thinks that's a fantastically <laughs> exotic name that they're yep. elite, but they have superior control over the virus. And, in fact, just in the last 12 months, a subgroup of those people have been described, which are now called extraordinary elite controllers. Oh, wow. So a lot of the vaccine design that have, has been going on over decades is modelled a bit on elite controllers. You know, how do elite controllers get a, get a grip on the virus and keep it under control? And most of the vaccines that have been tested in HIV have tried to mimic that. Mm. The things that people have used are actually quite similar to what we're seeing in COVID, developing very potent antibodies. They seem to kill the virus, at least in test tube models, or mimicking another arm of the immune system, which is prominent in elite controllers, which is largely the T cells. Yeah. So there have been some advances on vaccines for HIV, and I can talk to them in a bit more detail. However, nothing like what we've seen, yeah. of course, with COVID, and it's because of the A, no one clears the virus, B, um, the virus actually becomes part of our DNA, which mm. COVID does not. And C, HIV varies much more than COVID. Even though we're learning about and everyone knows about these variants of concern, that's happening because so many people are being infected by COVID in such a short period of time. Yeah. HIV on its own makes mistakes much more frequently than COVID. Right. Million questions. I'm sorry, very excited. It's been a while since we've been able to, you and I talk about HIV, but with, with regards to these elite controls or these, what were they, extraordinary elite controls? This reminds me of the um, the astronomy field where they had large telescopes and very large telescopes and then extremely large. You know, we just, we're not good at naming things. Um, but do they have any immune sort of responses that are unique for anything else or is it just HIV that you're seeing that, that sort of strange behaviour? 
Oh, it's just HIV. So elite controllers would have about, there'd be, you know, there'd be thousands of papers on elite controllers and probably 20 different arms of the immune system have been described. But what's consistent is that their T cells function really well. The extraordinary elite controllers, which was um, in a paper published in Nature um, late last year, found that in these subset of elite controllers, the virus, when it integrates, goes to a certain part of our genome where it's buried and silenced. It's actually in an area that we call gene deserts. Areas of our genes are more commonly produced or more commonly silenced. So Mm. there's something about the extraordinary elite controllers about where their virus buries itself, and it buries itself in these gene deserts. And that's become a very hot area in cure research because can we kind of shape the virus that you're left with on treatment to be in these parts of the genome where it's going to be permanently silenced. Yeah. So, I mean, that was going to be my next question really, and and maybe you can sort of elaborate on that, is where the direction is at the moment. Maybe it's everywhere, but is it around better treatments and better sort of dulling down of the virus once you've got it, or is it more like with the vaccination scenario we're looking at with COVID, prevention of actually contracting the virus in the first place? Well, the two big challenges that remain in HIV are a vaccine and a cure. So we have fabulous treatments, but the treatments are lifelong. And as soon as you stop the treatments in 99% of people, virus returns. So there's a lot of work on trying to get rid of those last bits of virus, trying to understand what they're doing. Mm. And the strategies are either directed against the virus itself or aimed at boosting the immune system to convert people from ordinary control to elite control. That's sort of what's happening in the cure field. The vaccine field is totally different. Vaccines are designed to prevent someone from ever becoming infected. And very similar approaches for vaccines. Actually, many of the vaccines that we have from COVID have leveraged off decades of work of vaccines in HIV. So a great example is the AstraZeneca vaccine, the Mm. chimp adenovirus vaccine, was developed by the group in Oxford for malaria and HIV. And um, so quite a lot of work's happening with adenovirus, not chimp adenovirus, but now adenovirus 26, the virus, the the Janssen vaccine, looks pretty good in HIV. Mm. Same time, antibodies are really important for um, prevention from HIV. And another big study that's come out in the last year is giving people antibodies At the moment, the COVID vaccines, you get injected with your COVID vaccine and your body starts making effective antibodies. The other way you can do it is pull out effective antibodies and give them as injections to people to prevent infection. Um, Something Crystal knows quite a little bit, but but we call them, you know, monoclonal antibodies or in HIV we call them broadly neutralising antibodies or BNABs. And they're being tested to see whether they can prevent becoming infected. So people, Mm. people front up and get an injection once every few months, and eventually we will work out how to make people generate their own broadly yeah. neutralising yeah. antibodies. Yeah, very interesting. Now, I want to talk a little bit about you and what's, you know, gone down over the last couple of years, I suppose, last 18 months. I remember, you, you probably remember this, but, you know, a few years back there was the, the massive floods up in um, in Brisbane, and there was a group of people that no one had heard of that suddenly became these rock stars. They were called hydrologists. And you heard people saying, get me a hydrologist. You know, I want to talk to a hydrologist. And everyone was like, a what? No one had heard of them before. And all of a sudden they were all over the news and, 
talk about flow conditions and where, where the water was going to go and when Brisbane was going to, you know, have a low tide effectively and not have water in all the buildings. Now, you know, I remember you and I working on a on the proposal for a challenge lab must have been six or seven years ago. We, yes. we, we, we got we got shown the door. You know, no, no one cared. <laughs> yes, I mean, you're I mean, right. What, what's, you remember that? I mean, what's, you know, we both have some scars. But, but it's back, back on it's the back. agenda. I mean, this yep. is the, what, so what's happened with you over the last 18 months? Because all of a sudden, one of the reasons people say, why didn't you get Sharon on earlier? Well, frankly, to give her a bit of a break, yeah. <laughs> you're in the media all the time. I mean, tell us about your life over the last year and a half. Well, it's been a very, um, very intense time. Um, and of course, as you know, I'm a virologist and infectious diseases physician. So a new virus between mm. you and me is a pretty exciting thing, even though I know COVID's yeah, yeah. been devastating. Yeah. But just uncovering information about a new virus is an incredibly exciting journey. At the same time, it's been an amazing 15 months for the Institute because yeah. the Doherty Institute was pretty much built to take on a challenge like this, to mm. take on a pandemic where an infectious diseases and immunology institute and we have research, education and public health all in the one place. We were set up in 20, 2014, so we had sort of six years to get to know each other a bit yep. and then, bang, this hit. And in many ways um, we had the right mix of people and at exactly the right time to really respond. So it's been a very exciting time for the Institute and it all started on January the 24th when the first diagnosis of January 24th, 2020, when the yep. first di- first case of COVID was diagnosed um, at Vidral, which is Victorian Infectious Diseases Reference Lab, part of the Doherty Institute, run by Mike Catton. Mike and his team had been working right through January developing a test for COVID, and that was mm. very much the key to I think, Australia's success, that we yep. got onto testing very, very early when you compare it to what happened in the US, for example. So right through January, uh, Mike and Julian Drewson and their team were working on developing tests. So they f- diagnosed that first case on January the 24th and immediately tried to grow the virus um, because they had known right through January that no one else had been able to grow the virus. So Julian Drews, who's got very magical green fingers, very good at growing viruses, which we actually don't do a lot of nowadays in virology because we just usually go for the genetic code, had a go at growing the virus from that first patient and was successful. So January the 29th when they announced that was really set us up for the Mm. next few months to make an enormous impact. Um, And the most important thing I think that Mike and Julian decided, I actually was not in the country on January the 29th (laughs) last year. I was in a remote part of Chile. But Mike and Julian knew that no one had that virus except for China. And you need the virus to um, really make new diagnostics, test drugs, test vaccines. And they made a decision to immediately share it globally and shared it with over 35 laboratories in the next sort of six weeks. We now know we actually, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is actually a really easy virus to grow, just that people didn't Mm. know which cell line to grow it in. So that was the beginning. And then, of course, we had mathematical modellers, Jodie McVernon and her team that had been doing a lot of modelling on influenza for years, had worked very, very closely, particularly with the federal government and their policymakers and so Jody's work fed into a lot of the decisions that were being made in the certainly in the early times and ongoing now. We have a very big genomics lab headed by Ben Howden. That's a microbiology diagnostic unit. Ben normally works on bacteria and looking at the genetic sequence of bacteria and his whole team 
switch to start looking at COVID um, sequences, which was important for epidemiology. A lot of our immunologists changed from working on mice to starting working on trying to find a vaccine. Our flu lab, um, headed by Kanta Subara, who actually is probably one of the only virologists in the country who really is a coronavirus virologist because right. she worked yeah. on SARS-1. Did, did she ever walk around saying, you know, <laughs> jump on board, jump on the train, like, you know, you're all on it now, but I've been on it for years? It was, it was, yeah, no, I mean, you know, she, having counter-runs been just fantastic because A, she's got all that experience, yeah. B, extensive network, and um, you don't want to repeat the mistakes of what you did mm, previously. Yeah. Lots of people do that when they hop into a new field. However, the field is just now so full of researchers from all different walks of life. All of them bring their different perspectives, whether mm. you've worked mm. on HIV before, on influenza, on bacteria. So we've seen this convergence yeah. of technologies and expertise on COVID. It's been quite an extraordinary thing to watch. And, and now you must have managed also the the risk and the fear in the, in the Doherty Institute as well, because you were like any other organisation where when the shutdown occurred, I mean, the fact that you're working on this crucial work is frankly somewhat irrelevant to the safety of the people in the building. So, I mean, how did you, how did you process that? What, what did the Doherty building look like? Was it as empty as everywhere else? No, no, no. The, the um, Institute pretty much kept working right through. About 70% of our staff are at University of Melbourne, 30% Royal Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So the Royal Melbourne staff and were working right through anyway in the hospital <clears throat> and also in the laboratories. Yep. And we had a brief period in um, <clears throat> in that first lockdown where the, where the research labs were closed. But if you were working on COVID, the, you were allowed to come to work. I think the biggest struggle was, was managing the density requirements because mm. although we were able to work, you had to manage the distancing. And I'd have to say overall... People were not nervous about COVID. There was this incredible um, enthusiasm and passion just to work and yep. to do, you know, that, I think that's what I found that most challenging was trying to stop people from yeah, working right. <laughs> because all of us felt like you were running yeah. this incredible race and everyone, I think, felt this responsibility to move as quick as they could. And it was okay for like the first six or eight weeks, but suddenly it was looking like it was going to be six to eight months right. and suddenly it was looking like longer than 2020. And so I think people, and and me included, found it difficult to realise, to slow down just mm. because it's not possible to be working on that. So, But people, and I, I have to say people just from all scientific disciplines showed this unbelievable um, generosity to help people whose labs closed down because they couldn't work on something, turn their attentions to COVID. And we had some extraordinary collaborations with people that had never worked on viruses before Mm. but brought their expertise to the problem. Yeah, no, fantastic. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Sharon, we've been talking about all the things that have been happening in the Doherty over the last year, obviously a huge amount. One of the, one of the questions that we just came up um, and, and chatted about during the break was the information flow and how you deal with that as an organisation, because that must have exploded in the space of COVID. So how, how do you go about that? Absolutely. And it's had. It, I think the information flow had different phases. So in that first sort of three months, you know, February, March, April last year, 
there weren't that many people working on COVID. The literature, I mean, publications were were dribbling out in preprints that you've probably talked about before. Like normally mm. when you publish an article, it takes six months, but, but by the time you submit it to the time it's in the public domain. But everything as it submitted became very became available immediately. So we were all using our own networks, whether it was WHO calls that Mike Catton was on, whether it was my own HIV networks, counters, influenza networks, emerging coronavirus networks. All of us had access to different information through different sources. And so um, what I did very quickly after returning from um, Chile, where I was on February the 1st, the day that they closed the borders <laughs> to China, we set up a um, initially daily but then tw- three times a week meeting of all the main leaders working in COVID across the institute. On average, about 35 people would meet three times a week. We still do it now twice a week, every Tuesday, every Friday. And we, it was information sharing, A, what was coming from people's own laboratories, their mm. diagnostic labs or research labs or the clinic, and B, their information that was coming through the networks. And then as time progressed, it was information that was on the preprints and then information that was published. But you really need an expert to distill it because if you go in there and, you know, put in COVID vaccines, let's just say for a search, you'll get 5,000 articles. So how do you know? So you really, so Terry Nolan, um, who's a, you know, very experienced vaccine uh, clinical researcher who's now part of the Doherty, you know, he would be hearing the latest vaccine work, whether it was on advisory boards he was on or in other fora. So it was Mm. a fantastic way of information sharing and distilling. We all do it at different levels in our own disciplines, but COVID has um, mag- you know, ex- um, amplified that exponentially. Yeah, look, it's, it's really heartening to hear that level of communication expertise coming into play because one of the things is what I wanted to ask you next that we've seen across the pandemic in the more public space is, to be frank, some appalling standard of communication where much of and which I know, has you're been... you're passionate about that. Very passionate about that, as you see my Twitter feed. Um, but you know, that, that scenario where inf- the, much of the information given to the public is either the wrong information or information they don't need or given to them in a way that's sort of either predatory or problematic. Mm. And, you know, it may sell newspapers, it may, you know, get clicks. But, you know, if we report every, you know, I put the tweet up the other day that said there'd been one death through blood clots out of two million doses so far in Australia, but 83 deaths on Victorian roads since Christmas. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, when we compare risks and we think, okay, wh- where are the risks really in our lives day to day? Sometimes reading about blood clots every day of the week is not helpful to getting people vaccinated. I mean, I mean, what, what's your view on that? Because, I mean, from your perspective with HIV, like we have a vaccine, we have many vaccines now to choose from, but we're starting to have problem with uptake yeah um, and that's going to get worse as long as we keep stuffing up the comms yeah yeah there's no doubt um this is a big big challenge i first of all I, from the very beginning i've been really passionate that scientists need to be out there talking mm. now we've probably got too many <laughs> you know who is an expert i don't know yeah, yeah. um i uh yeah so, you know I, I saw recently someone that was quoted as an expert in hotel quarantine i was thinking god that that expertise must have come on Where, pretty come quickly <laughs> in the last 12 months. Um, but uh, so, you know, and I felt that we've had a lot of spokespeople from the Doherty and it was really important that everyone had access to lots of information because when you're doing an interview, mm-hmm. it might, may start on vaccines and suddenly it's going to quickly go to quarantine. So, yep. again, that information sharing exercise was really important to empower people to be out in the public domain. How do you challenge misinformation? You know, really, really difficult. Um, how do you manage 
diverse view of so-called experts in the media. Mm. Um, we just have to keep on having sense, as much sensible messaging as we can, get more and more advocates that people listen to, you know, people get their information from very different sources and trust very different people. We've, at least in this country, had the good fortune of pretty high trust in government. I know at different yep. times, there's, it, you know, there's been controversial decisions and perhaps less trust, but largely trust in government, largely trust in experts. Many other countries haven't got yeah. close to what we've had here. Indeed. Now, uh, I really know the answers to a couple of these questions, but I'm going to ask you so that everyone can hear them because I think it's it's good for someone with your level of knowledge. Very, I don't think I know anyone who that I know personally that has more knowledge of virology and so forth than yourself. And you know, you've been on this show many times as a result. The and and in fact, we always have great conversations. But so, have you been vaccinated? I have indeed. Which vaccination did you get? I had AstraZeneca. And why did you choose to do that? Because I had followed what was the recommendations, um, which in Australia has been AstraZeneca and Pfizer. There Mm -hmm. are pros and cons of each vaccine. And when my turn came to get vaccinated, which I did as part of 1B as a healthcare worker, but not at the front line, um, I went to Royal Melbourne and they gave me AstraZeneca. And um, I knew a lot about both vaccines. Um, I should say I'm very super excited by the science of mRNA, quite excited actually about the science of chimp adenovirus as well. Um, And I knew that both vaccines were very highly effective against severe disease. And my view is that that is the most important thing, that Mm. we want to stop people getting sick and going to hospital. We are not going to eradicate COVID-19. Reducing infection and reducing transmission is also important. So, and I think that um, actually, interesting, I was vaccinated on April the 8th. Right. Which was, or was it the ninth actually, which was the afternoon. Day before Good Friday? Or, it was yeah. the afternoon, it was a Thursday, it was the afternoon at which the announcement came about the blood blood clots. And yeah. I have to say the early phase of that blood clot announcement were a bit concerning because we knew so little about the blood clots. But mm. now we really know a lot. We know that these blood clots look totally different to regular blood clots. People that are vaccinated have a high awareness of them. Doctors have a high awareness of this condition. We know that you need to treat these vaccine-associated blood clots in a very different way to standard blood clots. And if you give people with the vaccine-associated blood clots heparin, which is the standard treatment, which is the treatment for standard blood clots, it makes the whole thing worse. Interesting. So I think over time, yes, it's a serious side effect, but now that we know what it is, we know how to diagnose it, we know how to treat it, you'll see we have got, 18 cases reported in Australia, but they're getting picked up earlier and people are doing fine. So I think it's we're going to see deaths will be very, very unusual mm. from blood clots. But my vaccine came on that afternoon. Um, I'm over 50. AstraZeneca is the recommended vaccine for me. This is a public health response. So I will happily take AstraZeneca because we've now got a, um, a um, recommendation for under 50s to have Pfizer, so that's where the vaccine should be prioritised. And when you make these policies, it's not just about the individual. Of course, one a vaccine that's super safe for every Australian, but you have to balance access to the vaccine, where the best where you best place your resources and relative risk. Yep. And so I'm a big believer that once the public health advice is made, you just go with it. 
Yep, very good. Now, before I hand you over to Dr. Crystal to talk a bit about uh, leadership, which is something you, you know, whether you admit it or not, you've done a lot of in your life and done well. Um, I wanted to just cover quickly the issue of long COVID because I have to say, for me, when at my age, you know, just slightly under 50, but just slightly, um, you know, it, it feels like I would get over COVID most likely. It would be, you know, something flu-like, bit problematic, but I, I would probably be okay. But when I hear from 30-something-year-olds talking about long COVID conditions they've had six to nine months out, that scares the crap out of me. I mean, that must sort of trigger your interest, especially given your HIV sort of role and how long that long-term some of those illnesses are. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on this long COVID problem? Yeah, it's well, first of all, it's 100% real. Mm. So there's been some really big studies now looking at how common long-term symptoms are after COVID. Um, and estimates of between 10 to 15% of people more likely to occur after severe COVID. And, of course, young people can get severe COVID, but can happen after yep. relatively mild COVID. It's a really good study done out of Sydney, which has largely followed mild non-hospitalised cases of COVID, and they see similar rates, so these long-term symptoms. Um, unravelling the cause of it um, and, therefore, an intervention to stop these symptoms will take a while. It's much, much better just to prevent yeah. ever getting COVID. But it's certainly real. It will tell us a lot about how your immune system responds to a virus and then perhaps a permanent imprint of a virus on your immune system, I suspect, is what's driving this. Yeah, and I, I call out to all the media people out there after hearing what Professor Lewin just said a moment ago about all these great great new responses to the blood clot issue. It'd be good if you reported that as well. This is me shaming them, but saying report that as well as every time one is detected because that will help give people a lot of confidence that this is something that can be readily managed and is of a risk level that we shouldn't be concerned about with regards to getting vaccinated. So I think that's important. Now, Crystal, you wanted to throw some leadership questions at Sharon as well while we've got her in the studio. Uh, yeah, and I think, um, Sharon, you really touched on the fact that the response to the pandemic has required so many different people with different skill sets to come together, and we've just seen this amazing amount of collaboration. But I guess then, how do you lead through uh, so much uncertainty and bring together people who've never worked before. So I just kind of wanted to unpack how how you personally have kind of led through this and and what sort of leadership you know you've you've brought and or what you've seen others bring to the table to to provide that leadership through uncertainty but also working with such pace. Yeah, I you know, I think number one for me was communication, internal and external. So having that forum for internal communication and of course broader communication, which I have to say took us, because things were moving that fast, it took a while to realise the importance of the broader communication to all members of the Institute because people were at home and therefore not in the building. And so all the usual ways that you would interact with people suddenly changed. But then we started doing um, initially um, by um, electronically, but then we started doing a town hall meeting every fortnight. And that was it was quite interesting the number of people that joined those meetings, certainly at the beginning, and also we had a similar, um, similar experience with our seminar program because people were mm. at home. But we started these town hall meetings where we would just report what people were doing um, and because so much was happening. So that was very valuable. So communication has been really important. I think I, although there was a lot of uncertainty, I just had an inner faith in our capacity as scientists 
and clinicians and public health um, expertise that we would get on top of it. So just sticking to the scientific evidence. Um, and I think another um, important thing for me was being able to adapt as new evidence came in. And again, at different times that was used against scientists, I think less so in Australia. But, you know, this was a totally new virus. So we were learning new things about it as as we went along. So at the very beginning, we didn't have a really good understanding of this issue of asymptomatic transmission, mm. the whole issue about droplet aerosol, the issue about masks. You know, there were so many things that we went into and assumed this was the case and then were proved wrong. So I think it's really important to be able to identify, to explain that process and make our policy on the best available evidence and then move on when we got something wrong. Because I definitely, at the beginning, you know, it didn't make sense to wear masks universally for what we knew about influenza, but the minute we really saw the evidence of um, aerosol transmission and of effectiveness of masks in preventing infection and spreading infection and asymptomatic, so suddenly the policies change, and that can cause a lot of confusion, I think. So it's important for us to say, no, we were wrong before, but this is what we've now learned and this is the way forward. And I think that's the real um, thing about science being a process. Like science isn't a set of facts. Science is a process that you move through and build. And I think never before have we seen an evidence-based build in front of our eyes so rapidly. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it was, um, you know, there are lots of criticisms of what happened in China in the early days of COVID, but the amount of evidence that was gathered in China with this brand new disease over that period of February of March was was pretty extraordinary. And of course, we've built on that massively since that time. And I think one of the, the, the side effects of the pandemic or one of the, the silver linings from the pandemic has been so many, seeing so many scientific leaders like yourself out there, you know, turn on the radio and, you know, it's just like, oh, it's the Brendan Crabb, the CEO of the Burnett Institute, or, oh, look, there's Jodie McVernon on the television. Like, you know, we've seen so many different science leaders step up, but particularly women. And so is there is there an element here of how we've been able to spotlight some of the amazing women in science and the contributions they've been making? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I've heard a discussion from the UK saying, um, why is it all men that are commenting on scientific expertise? So we're actually quite privileged in Australia. Yeah. Um, not privileged, but we actually have, yeah, we have yeah. Um, we have some incredible, you know, women scientists in across Melbourne, across Sydney and many parts of Australia that are stepping up. So here in Australia, I think you're seeing that mix, but apparently um, in the UK, very different. And uh, the US too has been pretty male-dominated, except for now Rochelle Walensky, who's the mm. new head of the CDC. We're seeing a lot of her, but it's not universal. Yeah. That's interesting. So just before we go, um, now, of course, you, uh, well, the Doherty, um, no doubt through your leadership and many of your partners have been given a very, very large amount of cash by primarily the state government of Victoria um, to essentially build, I'm not sure what you're calling it at this point, Doherty plus extras mark two something. <laughs> um, I mean, tell us quickly about that. What's the, what's the, the goal there, Sharon? What's going to happen? Yeah, we have um, a very generous investment from the Victorian government of 150 $55 million to build a new building just south of the Doherty Institute, which is called the Australian Institute for Infectious Disease. It will allow the co-location of the Burnett Institute that will move from mm-hmm. the Alfred site up to Parkville, expansion of the Doherty Institute and some additional space that will we hope will be co-location of 
the private sector and small companies working on infectious diseases. The new buildings are very fancy, new, big thing. Uh, just that will be, as I said, south of the Doherty, connected, we hope, by um, bridges to the Doherty. It will allow significant expansion of our high-containment laboratories, which is where you have to work with highly infectious agents mm. like SARS-CoV-2 um, and improve our ability to screen for new drugs and um, test um, and evaluate um, infection in animal models. We hope a new um, uh, um, clinical trials unit there as well. And we're in, currently in discussions still with both the federal government and philanthropists about the, the amount of money needed for the whole building, which will be, unfortunately, quite a bit more than $150 million. Yeah. And just, just in the last 30 seconds, Sharon, it, we, we don't have the equivalent of a CDC in Australia. Is, is that the role that the Doherty and, and its partners should be playing? Is there a move towards that becoming the standard? I mean, you've, you've all but done that over the last year. Well, I think what we've learnt from the Australian response is that what we have here is pretty special, mm. meaning a very good public health response overall that's largely driven by each state government, which makes it complicated. Yep. So we call that, you know, the, we have a federated systems, federated yep. public health response, some over, obviously significant oversight by the federal government, but you need research to inform that public health response. And mm. um, our model in Australia has been that research has come from universities and research institutes, not government institutions. Yep. And those partnerships take a while to develop and they've been in development for many, many years that really strengthened over COVID. CDC is a different model. CDC is mm. fully funded by government. Yep. And I think we saw the downside of that mm. in the US. We normally look to the CDC for being the go-to place for infectious diseases, but that didn't work this time yeah. when you had the sort of leadership we saw with Trump. So I think um, we need a critical mass of, of researchers in all areas on data, on new technologies, on diagnostics, vaccines, therapeutics. We need that really strong in every state um, and then some coordination across the country to keep on informing the infectious diseases response that's largely driven by government yep. in our country. Sounds like a good plan to me. Professor Sharon Lewin, Director of the Doherty Institute, thanks so much for coming on Einstein and Go Go again. It's been absolutely fabulous having you for the whole hour. Pleasure to be here, Shane. Folks, we're going to have to hand over in the moment to the team from either. Dr. Crystal, good to see you again in the studio. Always a pleasure to talk science on a Sunday. And I've got Liv hiding behind the giant monitor. I can't see her, but she's been tweeting away. Folks, I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening to this hour. We haven't done a huge amount on um, COVID over the last few weeks because it's everywhere and we like to give people a little bit of a break here and there. But we thought this was an important uh, discussion to have and, and, of course, give Sharon just a moment to talk about HIV, which is her great love over many years. So, folks, uh, for me, Dr. Shane, remember science is everywhere. We'll chat to you again next week. And until then, enjoy, eat it, and keep listening to Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.